I encourage you to open up to the book, the letter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Over the past few weeks, we have been attempting to connect the dots in Paul's letter to the Corinthians about living the Christian life within Christian community with one another. And if you've been with us uh, over the past five Sundays, or if you've read the letter, you'll know that at the church of Corinth, it is not going well. There are people that are creating divisions among them, and there's a lot of divisions that are taking place over idolatry, over sexual desire, over positioning themselves in pride and authority, and Paul has a lot of things to address in this church. And to make sure that we are on the same page as we start this morning, let's recap what Paul has been going through for us to provide this launching pad to understand how we should address division and Christian community in the church. The first thing that Paul reminds us of is that he reminds the church at Corinth their identity and security in Christ Jesus. This is the very first thing he starts off with. This is that you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, held blameless into the last day. This is priority number one for Paul, because for us to be able to work through whatever it is that we need to work through in our lives, whether it's divisions in the church, whether it's living in Christian community, whether it is in your marriage, whether it's parenting your children, whether it's being a good worker at your job, your priority is to know the foundation of your identity. And as believers in Christ Jesus, it is saved and sanctified in him. It is set apart to be blameless, held apart until the last day. And because we are set apart by what Christ has accomplished, this should change and challenge everything that we do and all the people and how we see all people. The second thing that we saw is that Paul wants us to agree in what we say, that we be perfectly united in mind and thought. Divisions are breaking out in the church because people are trying to elevate themselves to levels of position and importance. You may have been in a church where you see this before, where maybe it's the deacon that has the big pocketbook. And because he's the primary tither of the church, he wants to be the one that dictates the way that the church goes. You've seen churches where they have a pastor that rotates in every two or three years, and it's another pastor that comes in because one person is controlling the way that it goes. And Paul is saying, none of this. This is not what we do. We don't align ourselves with different men. We align ourselves with the God-man, Jesus. And he dictates everything that we do, and we come under his submission and authority. The way that we do this is that we have the mind of Christ. Paul tells us that we operate in the mind of Christ, that that as we live and breathe and as the Spirit has come upon us, that we now can operate in the mind of Christ Jesus, meaning in our humility, our service, and our love for one another. And then last week, we saw this incredible thing that Paul is saying is that the temple is no longer a place that we travel to. This would have been such a radical statement for Paul in uh, the first century, to tell a Jewish believer or to tell Jewish people that you don't no longer have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. That you can come into Christian community that Jesus is now the sacrificed, crucified Messiah. His spirit is within us and now you come to with believers to meet and commune with God. And this changes the idea of what we see our gathering here. This elevates the way that we see each, each other. 
that as believers in Christ Jesus, that you have Christ's spirit in you. And as we gather together, that this should be a place of humility and worship and confession and repentance and love and grace and mercy, that, that we should be operating in this way. As we've been working through this letter of 1 Corinthians, there's one thing that should primarily stand out to us with Paul, is that he is not primarily concerned with the singular personal life. You know, a lot of times within our life, we think about my personal quiet time, or my personal devotion, or my personal life in Christ Jesus. He's concerned about those things. He wants those things to be held in high regard. But what he is most concerned about is the purity of the local church, the purity of the church, and that there be no divisions, nothing that get in the way uh, of separating us. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to read all of chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And when we read this, you might notice that this is some of the strongest language that Paul has used yet. He may sound heavy-handed, Uh, At parts, he might sound sarcastic. And this language by Paul has given some over the years, uh, some ministers over the years, a license to use strong language that turns into bullying and intimidation. So as we read this from Paul, and it might sound too strong or it might sound off, and you've seen it in church before, know this. You may have been in a church where one person runs the show. Uh, He uses that weight to be thrown around as leader. You may have been in churches where the pastor is unapproachable. You don't dare question God's anointed. You don't dare question God's minister. And so they take all of this authority and they, uh, they move the church in ways that it should not go. You may have been in church where this is manifested in people being really harsh with sin. And I don't mean church discipline. What I mean is they talk behind people's backs. They slander. They malign. They marginalize. And it's important for us to have this coming into it because a lot of us might bring this baggage into church where church, we've been mistreated or misused, have harsh language. And they'll appeal to Paul because Paul used harsh language. But notice this as we read uh, the letter from Paul. Paul may say some hard things, but he is never unkind. Paul may use harsh language, but he is never unkind. In fact, Paul's going to use parental language with them. He's going to say things like, I was like a mother to you. I fed you milk. You have had many fathers, uh, but not many fathers in Christ Jesus. Today, Paul is going to tie all of these themes together about how we have the mind of Christ, being the temple of God, and he's going to tell us to do this one thing, to imitate me. So today what we're going to see is that our imitation of Christ is going to come up in two ways. Uh, That we're going to imitate Paul in his service to Christ Jesus, and that we are to imitate Paul in his life for Christ Jesus. You may have heard it said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, I've learned as a parent that imitation is like the most revealing of who you are as a person. Uh, because my children often imitate Jessica and I. In fact, their favorite game to play is a game they call Moms and Dads. And Je- or not Jess, Daisy and Russell, they'll take Daisy's dolls, and then they'll take on the names uh, John and Jess, and they are parenting 
their doll children. And we'll hear them in the other room. And we heard Daisy one day say, if you don't get back in bed, I'm coming in there with the paddle. It's like, is that what we really sound like? Is that, is that how we are talking to our children? Imitation is really, it, it shines a light on who we are as parents. We do not threaten them with the paddle every time they get out of bed. But it has happened. Um, I can't lie. So let's read this morning out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And we will see the ways that Paul is calling us to imitate him. Starting in verse 1, it says this. This, then, is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us? How I wish that you had already begun to reign so that I, we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honor- you are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, 
or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? The very first way uh, that we see Paul encouraging us to imitate him is in the form of a servant. And if you have your Bibles open with you, look at verse 7, this stingingly rhetorical question that would kill all pride and self-exaltation. He says this in verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? Maybe you've had a parent or a grandparent uh, that has said something to the extent of, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it, right? It's this similar thought in a way of Paul, maybe a little less harsh than that, where Paul is saying, what have you received that was not given to you? If we look at the prophet Hosea, there's this amazing image in one of these compelling laments by Hosea where the Lord compels Israel to a newborn baby that has been abandoned in a field, and the image is quite graphic. He goes as far as to say that this child had been born and he had not, the, child, the, the child had not yet been clean from birth, that the umbilical cord was still attached to the child. I have this picture of my little Janie. Uh, her birthday's coming up uh, in a couple of days. And as a parent, when you look at your newborn child, you are filled with all of this love and joy and affection to them. But then you also realize, as you look at your baby, how helpless they are. I mean, when, when Jane was born, when all of our kids were born, they immediately take the baby and they put them under a heating lamp. They begin to check all of their vitals, make sure everything is okay. Because if we left Jane alone in the corner, she would die in a matter of hours. If she was not attended to, she would be gone. And this is the image that the prophet Hosea is conjuring up for us, for the nation Israel, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul wants us to connect to. What do you have that you have not received? You have been like a child abandoned in the field, left alone for much longer, you would die. For us to imitate Paul, we must see that outside of Christ Jesus, we are helpless. From him, every good and perfect gift comes, as James says. There is nothing that we have received in this life by our soul doing. And this is the image that Paul has been working with in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. You're still worldly. So I had to address you as mere infants in Christ. I had to feed you milk instead of solid food. And so Paul is coming, he's using both images as a mother figure and as a father figure to stir these Corinthians out of their sleep who have been lulled asleep by their pride and their boasting that you are nothing without Christ Jesus. And so for us to understand that we are nothing without Christ Jesus, we must understand this, that there is an authority in Christ Jesus. If we are to be a servant we must see that there is an authority in Christ Jesus. Paul says plainly, you are not the judge. God is. And he says, I care very little about what you think. So here's two distinctions that we may need to make here. Paul doesn't mean that all judgment is off the table or all discerning is off the table. Later in Corinthians, he is going to tell us that we are to judge certain situations. 
that in fact we are to remove people from our midst in our congregation who remain in sin. Paul does not mean we don't judge actions. This is not a license to give pastors and ministers just to bulldoze people's feelings and emotions. Paul isn't saying that. What Paul is saying, and what he'll say later, is that inside the motives of the heart, we cannot see. And something even a little more terrifying is that he tells us that there is nothing that you operate with in your feelings or in your emotions that is not going to be brought to light. That one day, the Lord, who is the judge, will see every intention and thought in your mind, and it will be brought to light. We may come in the posture of humility, but it is really an angling to gain some sort of control over someone else. We may come in the form of the posture of a servant, but it's really to gain control over people or situations, power in some way. And Paul says, there is one judge who at the end will judge everything, even the motives of the heart. He sees it. He doesn't miss it. You may live under the illusion that there is some secret sin, but there is no secret with the Lord Jesus. And this could elicit a few responses from us. First, it could elicit the response of anger. We could get angry at God. Who are you to judge me? I don't want to be judged. Why are you judging me? It can make us distant to say, I don't care. I don't care if there's going to be a judge. He can judge me. He can send me away. I don't want to have any of it. It could lead us to pride to say, look at what I've done. I don't deserve judgment because of all of these things that I've done for you in Christ Jesus. It could also lead us to fear. We say, okay, I do have some secret sin. I need to clean up my life. I need to make it better. But this is not the response we should have with any of them. The, the response and the posture we should have should be out of the psalmist in 139 where he says, Search me and know me, O Lord. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way within me. You see, the reason each of these first responses are wrong, especially the response of fear, is that the Lord Jesus doesn't call us to fear. He calls us to himself. And this response of fear to say, I need to clean up my life, I need to make it better, is in a way to say, I need to earn my own righteousness. I need to be the one that is presentable before the Lord based off of what I do. But because the Lord, as we sang this morning, is rich and full of mercy, because he laid all of his iniquities on Christ Jesus, it means that we can come freely to Christ Jesus in our confession and say, I am sinful, search me and know me, change my heart, fill me by your spirit, lead me in your ways. It means we can come completely humbly to him because he is uh, the Lord. Confession and repentance should lead us to humility before the Lord. So we imitate Paul in our service to the true authority. Next, we imitate Paul in service to the gift that we are stewarding. Now, here in this passage, Paul is responding to critics uh, because he is an apostle, and he is saying, and they're saying, he's not the best apostle, Apollos is, or Cephas is, and none of us in this room are apostles. However, if we are in Christ Jesus, we have all been given a gift to steward in Christ Jesus. If you think about what 
Paul is saying here, stewarding a, a good gift, entrusted with the message of the gospel, it reminds us of one of the parables of Jesus. Paul is saying here, it's very reminiscent of Jesus' teaching of the faithful manager, where they come and they give him so many talents, and they give this one so many talents, and this one so many talents, and one, he goes and he doubles it. The other, he goes and he makes a little off of it. The other goes and he buries it in the field because he was afraid of his manager. He knew that he was a strong uh, and angry man and he didn't want to lose it. Paul is telling us that as believers, we have been entrusted with the message of the gospel and we should steward this message well. The message of the gospel and the ways of Christ should influence how we love and care for our families. The message of the gospel and the ways of Christ should influence how we love and serve our church. The message of the gospel and of Christ Jesus brings us to humility, confession, and repentance. Back to our earlier illustration of imitating this morning. It's fearful what, uh, fearful might be the wrong word, but it is illuminating to see my children imitate me. But when I think about it, the ways that I have grown as a father and as a husband, I am in by no way means perfect as a father or husband. I've made a lot of mistakes. But what I've done well, anything that I've done well as a father or a husband, you know why that is? It's because I've seen it and I'm imitating it from my parents. I've watched them serve one another, be kind, I've watched them be gentle with one another. I've seen them argue with one another and talk about their disagreements with us and the ways that we're going to move forward as a family. In other words, I didn't hear them just teach me the gospel. I watched them model the gospel. They stewarded the gift of marriage and family through the lens of the gospel for our family. To pull from last week, one of the best ways that we can be a church and serve people is to be present with one another, to be present emotionally, present mentally, present physically, present relationally, to push deeply into Christ by seeking to know Christ and him crucified. You see, learning is not just the consuming of facts. We're not just learning about the gospel. We don't want to just learn good theology. We want this to change and shape us and how we live our life. And Paul calls this the wisdom of the crucified Messiah. That we orient our life under him to push deeply into him. And this brings us next to the, the vivid display, this vivid imagery that Paul brings up. We imitate him in our service, uh, in true authority and the gifts that we steward, how do we steward these gifts? Listen to what Paul says next. We imitate on display. Let me read, go back and read this for us real quick. If I can find it. Yes, here it is. Starting in verse, uh, let's start in verse 9. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9. He says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. What Paul is bringing up for us is an image that we no longer have in our minds. But in the first century, 
uh, Roman generals, when they would return from war, when they would return after a great victory, after conquering a city, they had these massive triumphal arches that would bring them back into Rome. And the conquering general would lead the procession of these triumphant soldiers under these arches. And there was a uh, symbolic, ceremonial, and religious meaning to this for them as Romans, that the soldiers, in a way, needed purifying from all the terrible things that they had to do to win the victory. And some believed that going solemnly under these arches would have some sort of effect on them to cleanse them in a way. But more than what's going on is a public display of glory, power, and victory for Rome. Now, where does Paul see himself in this procession? He's talking about a Roman procession. At the end of the Roman procession, what they would do is they would have all of the prisoners of war, all of those who had been captured in battle, and they would drag them in the back for everyone to be seen, to parade them through the streets, a weary gang of prisoners at the back. And these men would either be killed by the end of that day, they'd be sold into slavery, or they'd be sit into the arena to die in their games. And this is what Paul is saying here, is that for me, in Christ Jesus, I'm in the back of this procession. I am the one that is identifying in this way. This is a vivid image from Paul. Paul is saying, continuing through this line of wisdom and folly, wisdom from the world and folly from the world, that those that are captured at the end of the procession, they would be despised, scorned, rejected, mocked, ridiculed, They would be seen as less than human. And what Paul is saying is that this is the way of Christ. Think about back to our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is telling us that those who are blessed are the ones that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are blessed are the ones that are persecuted, yet they do not persecute back. Paul says this, that we are fools for Christ. You are so wise in Christ, but we are weak. You are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Paul is speaking a very clear message to the church at Corinth. Wisdom that they have been living by in this Stoic philosophy that they can build themselves up. It's a culture of self-sufficiency and self-determination. But Paul is, is going to say in the letter to the Philippians, I count everything as a loss. If there's anyone that should be prideful, if anyone that is learned, if anyone that has kept righteousness, it is me. But I count All of this for a loss, for knowing Christ and him crucified. And Paul sees his service and his display living the life of Christ Jesus in this way. Consider it this way. 
Consider the foolishness of the Christian life in this way. When we don't live for our personal autonomy, but we care more about the needs of others and the church. This is not a uh, situation that has happened in our church. Um, this is a friend of mine that's a pastor, and he, we, were, we were just talking. He was um, seeking some counsel and just help, really helping process it through. There was a husband and a wife in his church, and they were going through a separation. And the husband and the wife had gotten to this position where they just believed each other was out to get the other. They couldn't trust anything one another was saying. And the husband had men at his job telling him, feeding him this information to say, man, you should just leave her. If she's not giving you what you need or what you want, if she's not coming under your authority, you should just leave her. Like, it'd just be easier for you to go and be done with it. You see, the wisdom of the cross and the gospel reflective marriage in Ephesians 5 is for us to say, no, 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 no. No, we humbly serve our spouse, even though when we are not getting what we think that we deserve or what we need. We lay down our life for one another. Or in other words, what Paul is saying, when we are slandered, we speak kindly back. This is foolishness to the world. The foolishness, I mean, the, the world says, I need to get my word in. I need to speak my peace. I need to put this person down. But the message of the cross is to say no. We don't operate in this way. Let me find where I'm at. In our culture, uh, we have taken this idea and mixed it in with a version of hedonism that says that our highest good as a person is my individual pursuit of happiness. That my personal autonomy, the way that I live my life, the, the best way for me to live is my own pursuit of happiness. And the message of the cross is to say, no, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. We are an incredibly anxious time. The more that we have, uh, the more that we become anxious. We are in a culture that is entertaining ourselves to death. I uh, heard a study recently that nine out of ten college students can't go two minutes without feeling anxious if they don't have their phone. Every two minutes, they got to look at their phone. They're connected to something. Because it's this idea that I have to fill my mind with something. I have to find pleasure and seek it out. We have conditioned ourselves to be numbed by the world. And Paul is saying that this is not the way of the Christ. I mean, of the cross. Jesus in his death and the resurrection is not like um, this victorious, triumphal procession. Jesus is one of those that was esteemed, uh, not esteemed, he was afflicted, he was scorned, he was rejected. This is the stark and shocking picture of the Christian ministry. And Paul is saying, we identify ourselves with this Christ so that when we live our lives on display, it might appear foolish to the world. We give of our time and resources. We go to the vulnerable and the weak. Husbands and wives that fight for marriages, that are committed to one another, even when the other is not. This is the way of the cross. One of the most powerful stories that I've read uh, this past year was of Casper Ten Boom. 
He was hiding Jews in his house during World War II. And when they got found out, when they found that he was hiding Jews, he took him and his entire family to send them off um, to, to camps to uh, eventually be killed. And when Casper got to the end of the line to give all of his possessions and his materials away, he was met by this strange kindness of this German soldier. And the German put down his stuff, and he looked up at Casper. Casper was like around 80 at the time. And he said, listen, old man, I know that if I let you go, you'll just go home, and you'll live your quiet life, You won't cause any more trouble for me or these people here. What he was doing is he was offering Casper a way out. You know what Casper's response was? If anyone comes to my door in need of help, I will help him. Two days later, Casper's naked body was thrown in an unmarked grave. That's foolishness to us, isn't it? I mean, I'm thinking to me, I mean, literally, me in this moment with my family back home, I would be like, yeah, yes, you are, wow, what are you, yes, I will go back home. I'm not going to cause any more problems. But the way of Christ is to see ourselves so identified with him that we exalt others above ourselves in our service, our time, and what we do. And this sounds Foolish to the world. But this is the way of the cross. Paul ends uh, this passage, this section, by saying, Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and when then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Should I come to you with a rod of discipline, or should I come in love with a gentle spirit? There's a few things that I want us to think about, consider here in this passage, this section. There have been many that have pushed away the idea of church, uh, and maybe it's because of this. Paul says that I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as dear children. When someone comes into a church... And consider maybe for Alpine. When someone comes into Alpine, do they feel shame? Now, some will say, hey, brother, that's just the conviction of the Spirit. You know, they should feel shame. Maybe. Maybe it's the conviction of the Spirit. Or maybe it's that the church is operating in a boastful, arrogant manner. Maybe it's this prideful posture that positions people higher than they are. Maybe it's the church that isn't acting in humility, love, and service, and generosity. Maybe the church is operating in condemnation, hate, and pride. And this is exactly what Paul is speaking against. He's telling the church, you are being boastful. You are setting yourselves up above other people. This is not the way of Christ Jesus. Paul is telling them, he's not writing this to shame them. He's writing this to warn them as a loving father who cares deeply for them. Paul says that he's sending Timothy to remind them of the life in Christ Jesus. You might be here this morning and you might feel shame over your sin and it might be the spirit convicting you 
There are sins that we all feel shame for. But the message of the gospel is this, is that we no longer have to carry this shame. We no longer have to wear it as a burden on our shoulders, following us around everywhere that we go. We can freely give it to Christ Jesus, who loves us and accepts us and invites us to come into him. The one who made all things, who holds all things together, this God, Jesus, he doesn't meet you in your shame and put more shame on you. He meets you in your shame and invites you into his grace and his love. This should challenge us. This should comfort us. So as a church, we meet people in their shame and we bring them into the love of Christ Jesus. Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk but of power. The way that I heard uh, this illustrated is say that a cop pulls you over. Why are you afraid? Because the cop has authority. The cop has the authority to write you the ticket. Now, when Jess and I are driving, or actually, let me put it this way, Russell often asks me when we're driving, are you speeding? Why are you going faster? They're like, Russell doesn't have the power to give me the ticket, but boy, he's using words to shame me in a way. But if I were to be pulled over by a police officer, they have the authority to write me the ticket. In the same way, Jesus has the authority to judge the living and the dead. All authority has been given to him. Jesus has the authority to dispense grace, mercy, and love. Jesus has the power to unite us in his spirit. Jesus has the power to give us the mind of Christ. Jesus has the power to be in our midst as we worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus has the power to remove the condemnation of sin on us. So how do we come to him? In humility, as servants under Christ Jesus, walking in his ways. So three ways that we can be pushed out of the door and apply this to our lives. Serve the Lord in humility. I don't know if you've seen over the past two weeks uh, the revival that's taken place at the College of Asbury. It's quite remarkable. They've been going on uninterrupted for, I think, over 150 hours. And I haven't been there. Uh, I have only seen reports of it. Uh, But the things that I have seen about it is that in this revival, the people that are joining together, uh, there is the confession of sin, there is the reading of Scripture, and there is the worship of their tongues. They are continually singing out. As we come here this morning, there's a lot that's happening in our own lives. There's a lot that distracts us. But do we come with such a humble posture that we expect the Lord to meet us in our confession and repentance? Do we expect the Lord to to meet us by his Spirit to freely confess our sins and meet us there? If we don't, are we not not acting in humility? Aren't we acting in a boastful and prideful way? Come to the Lord in humility. Serve the Lord in our life, in your life, and serve the Lord by seeking the wisdom and the spirit of the living God to know Christ and him crucified and to identify your life with his. As we close our service this morning, um, if you are 
unfamiliar with Jesus and how he meets us where we are, I want to invite you to come have a conversation with me or Kevin or Jared or Eric. Um, and we would love to show you how Jesus meets you where, he, where we are and how he has the authority to release us from the sin that consumes us, that we can come freely to him.